Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Matthew chapter 24. This summer, I am focusing attention on the prophecies of the end times and what the scripture teaches regarding the soon return of our Messiah. I thought we would start by looking at the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. We're not going to look at all of those passages, but those are the three references to what Yeshua taught when he was asked concerning the end time events. I want to step back and look at this question that had to do with the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But before we do, let me just uh, bring us up to date with respect to some of the things that we've already shared over the last two weeks. We looked at Matthew 24 and 25, and I just want to draw your attention to the fact that when we're looking at a portion of Scripture, it's always important to see it within its broader context, if we can. So in chapters 1 to 23, we have one major section in the uh, book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And that major section reveals Yeshua as the prophet of God, the prophet of Israel, the prophet of of prophets. Remember, Yeshua the Messiah would embrace three major offices, a prophet, priest, and king. In chapters 1 to 23, we really have Yeshua presented as a prophet. As a prophet, he teaches the will of God. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is a classic passage in that regard. But as a prophet, he also gave predictions about the future. And when he gave predictions about the future, he had to give both near and far prophecies. Prophecies that would be fulfilled during his lifetime, so we could test the prophet to see that he truly was a bona fide prophet. Yeshua gave such prophecies. He said things like, you know, that we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed and handed into the hands of my oppressors and into the hands of the Gentiles, and they will crucify me. And on the third day, I will rise again. Those were all predictions about what was to occur, and they did occur. He told us that one of his disciples, Peter, that before the rooster would crow three times, he would deny him three times. And so we see that Peter had to deny Yeshua three times before the rooster would finish crowing. 
These were predictions that Messiah made that came to pass during his lifetime. And thus, and these are just some that came to mind. And thus, as a result, we can test him to see that he's a bona fide prophet. Prophets also gave far prophecies, prophecies that would not be fulfilled to some distant time. In Matthew 24 and 25, we have some of the distant prophecies that Messiah would give to us. So in chapters 1 to 23, Yeshua is presented as a prophet. And in chapter 23, he does what all the prophets of Israel have done. They've made some scathing remarks regarding the Jewish leadership, because more often than not, the Jewish leaderships would lead Israel astray in rejecting the revelation of God. And thus, in the time of Yeshua, we find the Jewish leaders had led the nation in rejecting Yeshua as Messiah. And so in Matthew 23, we have these seven scathing proclamations that Yeshua makes about the Jewish leadership of his day. But at the end of Matthew chapter 23, he gives us the precondition for his return. He says, you will no longer see me until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the precondition for the coming of Messiah. No matter how much we pray for his coming, he will not come until Israel as a nation says, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We should continue to pray for his coming for sure, but we should be praying that the Jewish people will come to know Yeshua as Messiah because when they do and they cry out to him, he will return. And that will come about when the fullness, this is an expression Paul uses, Romans eleven twenty five. when the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So when God's spirit is so moving around among the nation that that final Gentile individual comes to know Yeshua as Messiah, then we're going to see the spirit of God working among the Jewish people once again in a unique way in which the hearts and minds of many Jewish people will be turned to acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah. As I've said numerous times, it's that one Gentile holdout that's holding up God's program for his son to come again. But in any case, that it, so much is true that when the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, then the blindness which has occurred in part among his people will be concluded And we will see what the prophet said. They shall all know me. Speaking about Israel, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. No one shall need to teach them, Jeremiah says, for they shall all know me. So we want to pray for that moment when all shall know him. What will be the linchpin for the return of Messiah? When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. What's also interesting, I didn't point this out before, but it occurred to me that while Yeshua presented this proclamation of judgment on the Jewish leadership for leading Israel to a place in which they rejected Yeshua at his first coming, it will be the Jewish leaders that will lead the Jewish people to accept him at their second coming. Remember, Yeshua is speaking to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, and he says, You will not see me any longer till you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's going to come a time when the Jewish leadership will finally recognize Yeshua as Messiah and lead the rest of the nation to repentance. Now, when you get to chapter 26 of Matthew, we're then brought into that place where Yeshua celebrates Passover with his disciples. We read about his trial, his execution, his death, his burial. 
and his resurrection. From Matthew 26 to 28, now it's the priestly ministry of Yeshua that we are introduced to. Matthew chapters 1 to 23, his prophetic ministry. Matthew chapters 26 through 28, his priestly ministry. Which ministry he is fulfilling now as he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us as our great high priest. In Matthew 24 and 25, we have these prophecies of him when he will come as a king. And so Matthew 24 and 25 is distant prophecies of the soon coming kingdom. And when the kingdom occurs, our Messiah will reign as king. Matthew 21 to 23, prophet. Matthew 26 to 28 to the present, 2017, uh, 2017, a priest. Matthew 24 and 25, prophecies regarding him coming as a king. And when he comes as a king, he'll reign for a thousand years. That's sort of the context for Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew 24 now, Yeshua is in the temple with his disciples. His disciples point out to him, have you seen all the stones in this temple? Have you seen how beautiful it is? And Yeshua says, not one stone will be left standing upon another. As he walks out of the temple and goes up to the Mount of Olives, we're told that he was sitting on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came and they asked him three questions. They said, what is the sign that these things will occur? What is the sign that the temple will be destroyed and not one stone of the temple will be standing upon another? What is the sign that Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple destroyed? What is that sign? That's one question they asked. The second question they ask is, what is the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And the third question they ask is, what is the sign of your coming? So those are the three questions Yeshua is going to answer in the Olivet Discourse. What is the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? What is the sign of the coming end of the age? What is the sign of his coming again? Now, the thing about Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21, is that all three of these accounts do not answer all three questions. So Matthew's account does not answer the question, what is the sign of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem? Yeshua gave the answer, but Matthew didn't record it in his account. You have to turn to Luke 21 to get the answer to that question. So we're going to go there in a moment. When they ask the question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? There we can find the answer in Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. All of them address that question, or at least give us Yeshua's answer to it. And then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24 regarding the last question. What is the sign of your coming? Now, the other problem that we find in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, is that the answers to the questions are not given in the order that the questions were answered. So you have to sort of step back and reflect on what answer is he giving and to what question does it go? So in Matthew chapter 24, the first answer he gives is the question regarding what is the sign of the coming of the end of the age? That's the first question answered, but it's the second question asked. So he answers the second question first. And he told us, and we looked at this already, that the sign of the end of the age is the coming of 
world wars. Because in Matthew chapter 24, he told us that there would be wars and rumors of wars, that there would be famines and earthquakes, but the end is not yet. Now, when he talks about wars and rumors of wars, he's talking about local skirmishes, sort of restricted skirmishes and conflicts among various tribal groups or nations. But then later he says, but the end is not yet. And then he says, but when you see nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes, and that these, he said, are the beginnings, again, it's still not the sign of the end, but the beginnings of birth pains. So now he told us that when you see worldwide conflict, and by the way, two rabbinic ideas are critical in this section. One is the question, what is the sign of the coming of the end of the age? The Jewish rabbis taught that there were two ages. There is the present age, which is history as we know it, from Genesis 1-1 to when it will end, to the age to come. Those are the two ages the rabbis spoke of. The age to come, which is the Messianic kingdom, and the age in which we are presently existing, which is history up until that point. So when the disciples ask, what is the sign of the coming of the end of the age? They're talking about what is the sign of the coming of the end of history as we know it and the beginning of the Messianic era. And then when Yeshua says war nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, these two phrases are used in two significant rabbinic passages to speak of worldwide conflict and the rabbis attach it to the coming of the Messiah. So when Yeshua says nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, he has something of a broad understanding, a broad image that encompasses all the nations of the world. And that doesn't happen until the 20th century with what we know is World War I, World War II. Now, For the first time in all of human history, we have an international worldwide conflict. And what's also interesting is that these two worldwide conflicts have direct impact on the Jewish people. For after World War I, the Jewish people are issued the Balfour Declaration, which promises a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine, which was understood as Israel as we know it today, including the country of Jordan. That was Palestine in 1917, 1918, when the Balfour Declaration was issued. It was never fulfilled by the British, but by 1948, at the end of World War II, Israel becomes a state. After World War I, the Balfour Declaration and the increase in Zionism and in Zionistic aspirations and in the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. After World War II and the Holocaust, we have Israel as a state. So after these first two worldwide conflicts, we have impacts on the Jewish people in a way that has been unprecedented up to that time. And so in answer to the first question, what shall be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? We're going to look at that in a moment. Because after Yeshua mentions this coming of worldwide conflict, when we turn to Luke chapter 21, I believe it's verse 20. Luke begins this section. I don't have it up here. 
But he says after they after in Luke's account where it makes reference to nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Luke is very specific about what Yeshua says. He says, but before all of this, it's a very key phrase. Because in Luke 21, when he introduces the phrase, uses the phrase before all of this, he means before these worldwide conflicts, before these these end time indicators. And he begins to talk about some of the suffering that will endure. Now, what oftentimes gets us confused is in Luke 21, where after he says, but before all of this, and he begins to chronicle some of the conflicts the disciples themselves will experience, it reads very much like some of the issues that the believers at the end of time during what we'll refer to as the tribulation period, that final seven years before Messiah returns, it's yet future to us, read very similarly. And so readers of scripture, sometimes they make the mistake of thinking that what Yeshua is recorded as saying in Luke 21 refers to the same events as what is recorded in Matthew chapter 24. They are not. They can't be because Luke tells us those events will occur before these wars against nations against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And what's interesting is in Matthew's account, he records after. So the point is, what is going to take place, Yeshua is now addressing with regard to the disciples themselves in Luke 21. And what he tells us is, he interjects this point. I'm going to talk now about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but before I'm going to talk about that, having talked about struggles at the end of time, I want to talk about some of the struggles you guys are going to experience. And so he tells them, when you conduct your ministry, you're going to encounter persecution like you've never seen before. You're going to be brought up before synagogues. You're going to be brought up before Gentile rulers. Many of you will die, but he that endures to the end will be saved. Nevertheless, you'll remain faithful, and your security in me is established. So we're getting to the point I want to talk about this morning, but in setting it up, Yeshua has answered the question or begun to answer the question, what is the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And he's told us these world wars, famines, and earthquakes, when they become like birth pains, when they increase in intensity and frequency, be alert that the end is, we're drawing closer to the end. We're not at the end. It's the beginning of drawing closer to the end. So local skirmishes, he says, don't be alarmed. The proliferation of worldwide conflict, start pricking up your antennas because we're moving closer to the end of the age and the beginning of the age to come. And then he says, but I want you guys to know that when you take the message I've given to you, you're going to encounter trials and tribulations too. They're not the trials and tribulations of the end times, but they're trials and tribulations nonetheless. And they will be severe. Maybe not as severe as what will happen in the end times, but nevertheless, they will be severe. Now, in answer to your question, doesn't answer that one just yet. But in answer to your question, what will be the sign of the destruction of the temple? He wants to talk about that because that's within the time frame of their own suffering. 
right? He's just told them what they're going to endure as ones who bring the message of Yeshua. And that leads him to talk about what's going to be, happen to the entire nation in the not too distant future. So he tells them, with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So here's the sign of when Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. When the armies surround the city, know that you will not be able to resist. And so I shared last week the historical events that accompanied this occurrence. I mentioned that, first of all, in 66 AD, the first Jewish revolt gets underway. The temple will be destroyed in 70 AD. Masada will fall in 73 But the revolt takes place in 66. Initially, the Jewish people are victorious. They're pushing the Romans out of Israel, out of Judea, out of the land. The general, Cestus Gallus, is sent with his troops from Caesarea, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, sends his troops into Jerusalem. When he gets into Jerusalem, his supply line is too long stretched out. He doesn't have enough supplies to maintain the Roman army. So he decides to retreat, go back to Caesarea in order to get more supplies. When he does so, some of the Jewish zealots attack and Cestus Gallus is killed. Now for the next three years or so, Rome has to bring new troops, new leadership to Israel from Rome. They send Vespasian and they send Titus. Now before those two guys, Vespasian will become the emperor. Titus will bring about the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and Masada. But before they get there, the siege around Jerusalem is lifted. And when the siege around Jerusalem is lifted, the Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem obey what Yeshua told them. What did he tell them to do? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. What are they supposed to do? Flee to the mountains. So what they do, according to Jewish history... The Jewish believers leave Jerusalem and they head to Pella. This is recorded by Josephus, a Jewish historian who's not a believer. It's recorded by Eusebius, who is a Christian Gentile believer who records this event. And it's recorded by Hegesippus, who is a Jewish believing historian who records this truth or this event as well. All three of these historians Record the fact that the Jewish believers leave Jerusalem. As a consequence of leaving Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders now call Jewish believers for the first time Meshumadim, traitors, because they leave Jerusalem. But the Jewish believers leave Jerusalem not because they're not willing to give their lives for their country, but because their Messiah told them to leave the city when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and their loyalty to Yeshua takes precedent over all other loyalties. And by the way, that's the point that the writer to the book of Hebrews is making to his readers. Yeshua is superior in all respects. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to the temple. He's superior to the sacrificial system. He's superior to everything. 
And therefore, the writer to the Hebrews is saying you need to always obey him. And what is the writer to the Hebrews concerned about? That they will leave Jerusalem when they have opportunity. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written around 66 A.D. And thus, in response to the writer to the Hebrews, in response to Yeshua's own words, the Jewish believers leave Jerusalem. They go to Pella, P-E-L-L-A, in north north western part of present-day Jordan, and they are enabled to endure all the consequences that Rome brings on the Jewish nation in 66, 70, and 73. And so in 70, the city and the temple are destroyed, and over a million Jewish people are killed. The largest number of Jewish deaths up until the time of the Holocaust, when Nazi Germany will kill 6 million Jewish people. Now, what Yeshua told us is that this treading down of Jerusalem will occur until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, this expression, times of the Gentiles, is uniquely Yeshua's expression. And it refers not to the fullness of the Gentiles. I made reference to that, Romans 11.25, which speaks of the number of non-Jews that will come to know Yeshua as Messiah. That is not to be confused with this expression. The expression, the times of the Gentiles, refers to the times that the Gentile nations have authority or impose their authority over the Jewish people. When it speaks of Jerusalem, it speaks of the city per se, but what the city represents. It's like saying Washington will be trodden down by whoever. What does that mean? It means the United States is going to be trodden down upon. So when Yeshua says Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles, he's not just thinking of the city of Jerusalem, he's thinking of the Jewish people being trodden down, which is represented by the capital of their nation, Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles. Now, this is very critical. I want you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, we're given an indication of what the times of the Gentiles is about. Because in Daniel chapter 2, for the first time, we have the nation of Israel taken into exile and taken into captivity. Yes, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom of Israel around 720, but in 600, the Babylonians take captive the southern kingdom of Judah, and now Israel as a whole has gone into exile. Daniel is taken into exile to Babylon around 600 during the, one of the, the first wave of exiles brought into the land of Babylon. And while he is in Babylon, he is separated out along with some of his companions for special training. Why? Because he's young, he's about 17. Secondly, he's also very wise. And the Babylonians are recognizing giftedness in these Jewish men that they take captive earlier than the rest of the nation. There will be three different times at which the Babylonians will bring into exile the Jewish people. The first exile is in 600. Second is in 597. The third is in 586. But in 600, Daniel is taken captive. When he's taken captive, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. None of his wise men can tell him what his dream is. He won't tell them the dream. He wants the interpretation, but he won't tell them the dream. The reason he doesn't tell them the dream is because he believes 
that if their God can tell them the meaning of the dream, their God should be able to tell them the dream itself. But none of the Babylonian leaders can get the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to kill all of his wise men. Daniel steps up and he tells one of the king's servants who is attached to Daniel to watch over him. Daniel tells him, tell the king, I'm going to pray to my God and he will let me know what the dream of the king is and what it means. And so Daniel spends time in prayer. He reflects and God not only reveals to him the meaning of the dream, but he tells him the dream as well. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. Now, in chapter 2, looking at verse 31, Daniel tells the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31, he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, a statue. The image was mighty and of exceeding brightness, and before you in its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold. The chest and arms were silver. Its middle, its its torso and its thighs were bronze. Its legs were of iron. Its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. So there's the image. The image was a statue. The head of the statue was of gold. Its arms and its upper torso, its chest, was of silver. Its stomach area and thighs was of bronze. Its legs were were of iron, and the feet and toes were partly iron, partly clay. Then he saw a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it struck the image at its feet, and the feet crumbled and just were disintegrated, and the entire image falls to the ground, becomes dust, and is blown like the chaff, blown by the wind so that it can no longer be found. But the stone that struck it becomes a great mountain in its place. That's the image he saw. Now in verse 36 or so, can't read this too well. But in verse 36, we have the interpretation. It says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king... The king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given what, what, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you roll of them, you are the head of gold. So now we know this image of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar. And what does Nebuchadnezzar represent? The empire of Babylon. So that's what he represents. Now we go further down. Then he says, another king inferior to you shall arise after you. So now we know the second area of this image of silver was a kingdom that would arise after Babylon. And the kingdom that arose after Babylon were the Medo-Persian Empire and the Persians. Cyrus 536 takes control of the then known world and allows the Jewish people to return. 
There we have the silver arms and, oh, I should say, yeah, silver arms and the chest. And what's interesting is that Media Persia started out as a two-entity empire, Media Persian, like the two arms. And then it became one entity, the Persians, like its chest. Then he goes on to tell us, And there shall be another kingdom inferior to you shall arise, yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And so the kingdom that brings Persia to its feet is Greece. And Greece will rule over the then known world. And then he tells us, following that kingdom, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces, shatters all things, and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And of course, the kingdom that destroyed Greece was Rome. And then he sees this ten-toed kingdom that's like Rome, iron, and yet somewhat inferior because it's also partly clay. That, of course, he's looking to the final empire that will reign over the earth that will ultimately be destroyed by the stone cut out without hands. And what is the stone that's cut out without hands that becomes a big mountain is none other than the messianic era when the king of Israel, the stone cut out without hands, it's not an earthly kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom whose origins are of a miraculous nature, not origined in the earth. And it will, be, it will destroy the kingdoms that were seen in that image. And then its own kingdom will be established over the, the four corners of the earth. That's the kingdom of Messiah. Now, if you look, he says uh, in verse 42, And as the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together. Look at verse 41, 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It will break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that in broken pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. What Daniel is seeing is the times of the Gentiles. That is the times in which Gentile nations are ruling, maybe too strong in every respect, but are imposing their wills over the Jewish people and over the Jewish nation. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and that last kingdom is the end-time kingdom of the false Messiah, the Antichrist, the end of the age that will occur, which will reflect the final seven years. And then when Messiah returns, his kingdom will stand. So what is Yeshua telling us? He's telling us the sign of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem will be when you see it surrounded by armies. The Roman army will be the army that surrounds it. Know that the temple will be destroyed. And know that Gentiles will be sort of overlording the Jewish people until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, until the time that Messiah comes. There's always going to be a struggle 
between the Jewish nation, if they are a nation, and they hadn't been from 70 AD until 1948 in AD. And so for all of that time, they were dispersed throughout the world. Then we see that the Jewish people are being regathered. Jerusalem, for the first time, is liberated back in Jewish hands in totality, both east-west Jerusalem. But the prophets tell us Jerusalem will one day fall. It will fall under the leadership of the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist. And it will be Messiah himself who will restore Israel and redeem his people. So So Yeshua is telling us what's going to happen is the temple will be destroyed. And Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the Messianic kingdom is installed, until it begins. So what is the sign of the destruction of the temple? The surrounding armies around Jerusalem. What is the sign of the end of the age? Know that as we see world wars increasing, famines and wars and earthquakes, he says, as they increase in intensity and frequency, we're drawing closer to the end of the age. And then what Yeshua tells us is what, will, what is the sign of the approaching end of the age? If you have your Bibles, just very quickly, let me draw your attention to it. And we're going to pick this up next week uh, in looking at the uh, Sermon on, on the Mount, again, or I should say on the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew chapter 24, when you turn to verse 15, He begins to give us the signs that indicate the end of the age. And as he looks at those signs, he segues into the sign of his coming. So now just look at Matthew 24. In verse 9, he says, They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away, many false prophets. And this he's talking about their personal struggles. And many false prophets will arise, lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So what is Yeshua telling us? First of all, this is what he's telling us. These are events that will lead toward the end of this age. Number one, he said, they will deliver you up to tribulations. Interesting that he introduces that term when thinking about the very end times. So he's telling us there'll be great tribulation. Can't go into all the verses now because of the interest of time. Notice Luke said before all of this, he was describing events before the sign of the end of the age. He was describing events that the disciples would experience. But Matthew is describing events after the sign of the end. That's what I read. And then, he says, after the wars, uh, kingdoms against kingdoms, nations against kingdoms. This is what he says. Then they will deliver you up. After this is what the Greek says. They will deliver you up to tribulation. So then very quickly, he's describing these events related to the first half of the tribulation period. Tribulation period, seven years. So he's describing, first of all, events of the first three and a half of those years. And what does he tell us? There'll be intense persecution. We're going to look at this down the road, but not today. He tells us there'll be the emergence of many false prophets. There'll be an increase in evil and wickedness. Paul makes this point too, by the way. He says, those who endure this tribulation period will be saved. 
And then this is an interesting phrase. He says, there'll be the worldwide proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. It's very important that you understand he's not talking about the good news you and I proclaim. The good news you and I proclaim is the death, burial, resurrection of Yeshua. What he's talking about is the good news that the kingdom is upon us. That's not what we, we proclaim. We don't know when the kingdom will dawn. Because we have many things that are yet to occur. Remember what Yeshua said. When you see the things you see, the end is not yet. So we can't proclaim the end is really soon. The kingdom is coming very soon. We don't know when. But what they will be proclaiming prior to the coming of the kingdom is that it is coming soon because they'll know when it comes. They'll know when it comes. We're going to talk about this. They'll know when it comes when we get to those events because they are initiated by significant events. And he tells us what those events are. And when those events occur, there's only seven years to go. And now we can proclaim the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom is at hand. Just like John was able to proclaim. He proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He could proclaim that. Why? Because Yeshua was right there. So the kingdom is at hand. And if we accept him, the messianic age will begin. But unfortunately, our people as a nation did not accept him. But they could have. And John's words were correct. But you and I are not living where Yeshua is here. He's here by his spirit. And we don't know when he will come to establish his kingdom on earth. Because we don't know when the particular events that will initiate his return will, will occur. For they have not yet occurred. But what Yeshua is telling us, when there is this worldwide proclamation that the kingdom, the messianic age is upon us. Now we're getting right up to the door of the coming of the end of this age and the beginning of the next. And then he tells us events of the second half. We're not going to go there this morning because of of time. But what I want you to see is that Yeshua is very precise and very specific about how the events unfold. And we want to understand his words to us. We want to understand what he's telling us because that is is the indicator of Yeshua's soon coming. Now we're going to talk more about the rapture. We're going to talk all about these things during the course of the summer. Right now we want to understand what Yeshua is talking about so that we have an idea of these end time events that we can have a panoramic view and then we can fit all these other ones in the context of. So it's an interesting study and I hope you're kind of moved by this. But let's pray And then we're going to receive our offering for this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promise of your soon coming. And we thank you, Father, for the time and energy and revelation you have given to let us know that you're coming again. And in one sense, your coming is soon because the catching up of believers can occur at any moment. But the establishment of your kingdom on earth will be precipitated by certain specific events. Help us to understand them so we don't get carried away with things that sound uh, interesting, 
but are not in accordance with your word because your word takes precedence. Father, we bless your name and we ask that in our day and age might we be faithful in proclaiming Yeshua has come in his priestly ministry to give us redemption and salvation. He came as a prophet. He is now serving as a priest. And one day he will reign as king. And we would pray, even so, come Lord Yeshua, reign over your earth. But we would also pray, Lord, come Yeshua to the hearts and minds of many individuals today, Jew and Gentile alike, that they might have life everlasting, that they might know you, the only true and wise King of all kings and Lord of all lords. May they experience the indwelling presence of your spirit and be empowered to live a life that glorifies your name and to have a hope that looks to the future with optimism and expectation. We bless you, Lord. We glorify your name. And we thank you. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.